This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free online resource for health professionals' education. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor at Harvard Medical School. We are very pleased to have with us today Dr. Paul Offit. Dr. Offit is the Director of the Vaccine Education Center and Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Disease at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's also the Maurice R. Hilleman Professor of Vaccinology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine, and he is a member of the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee. Paul, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I wonder if we could begin by asking really kind of a mechanism question. We know as pediatricians uh, that there is a long history of vaccine development. Not all of them were successful and that this is very difficult science. And in particular, early on in the COVID vaccine story, there was concern about perhaps antibody-dependent enhancement or vaccine-associated enhancement of disease, which are two different concepts. And I wonder if you could just explain to the audience, what is the concern about antibody-dependent enhancement? And it's been seen in dengue, we know that, if you could explain why. And then also uh, the concern about vaccine-associated enhancement of disease. If you could just take us through what's the mechanism and the salient history of that. Sure. So I'll start from the beginning. Actually, in the 1960s, there was a group at the National Institutes of Health that was interested in making a vaccine against respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. They did it by taking the virus and purifying it and then inactivating it with a chemical. What that did was that altered the fusion protein, which is the protein on the surface of the virus that allows the virus to attach to and then ultimately enter cells. What ended up happening then was instead of getting a robust neutralizing antibody response, it was mostly a binding antibody response. So so antibodies bound to the virus, but didn't really neutralize it. So that when then children who were vaccinated were exposed to the natural virus, the wild type virus, what those antibodies did was they bound to that virus and actually facilitated entry into cells, hence the term antibody dependent enhancement. That product actually never made it to the market for that reason you were more likely to be hospitalized and more likely to die from RSV pneumonia if you were vaccinated than if you weren't vaccinated. There was a similar problem, and for the same reason, with an early measles vaccine, where again, the measles vaccine was made by uh, taking the virus, growing it up, purifying it, and then inactivating it with a chemical. Measles virus, too, had a fusion protein, and that fusion protein was altered so that no longer could it induce a neutralizing antibody response. It just induced a binding antibody response. So that's that's antibody-dependent enhancement. This became an issue for SARS coronavirus with SARS-1, the first SARS virus. It sort of raised its head in, in 2002 because there were animal model studies that showed that at least if you took that same approach, take the virus, SARS-1 virus, and activate it with a chemical and then inoculate it into experimental animals and then expose them to the wild-type virus, that in fact, you did have antibody-dependent enhancement. So that's always been a concern with SARS-CoV-2, now this most recent virus, but it has not been true. It certainly was not true in animal model studies. There's no evidence that it's true in in humans. So what was true for SARS-1, it's not true for SARS-CoV-2. So not a problem. And uh, similarly, vaccine-associated enhancement of disease, not quite the same concept. Am I correct? Right. The the notion being that that if you're vaccinated, that you then, when exposed to the wild-type virus, would because of an aberrant immune response that you then actually enhance the ability of that wild type virus to cause harm. But again, 
Quite the opposite. I mean, we now know that this vaccine is remarkably effective and remarkably safe, certainly more than anyone would have ever predicted. I mean, I'm on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee. I can tell you that back in December, when these uh, vaccines were first being made and presented to us, we were told that if the vaccine was at least 50% effective with a lower confidence bound of 30%, that we would approve it. Dr. Fauci around that time said he was optimistic it could be 70% effective. When we were first presented the data, these vaccines were 95% effective, you know, all comorbidities, all age groups, but all symptomatic illness initially. Obviously, that's faded to some extent for mildly symptomatic or moderately symptomatic illness. But I really don't think there is a scientist on this planet that would have thought these vaccines would have been as good as they've been. And uh, just before we leave this story and move on to the vaccine data for children, were you concerned when the multisystem inflammatory syndrome first emerged that there could be some vaccine-associated enhancement of disease? Right. It's certainly because we don't really know the immunological mechanism of multisystem inflammatory disease. I mean, what we know is that usually children are, and these are children between 6 and 14 years of age with an average of 9 years, when they're, they're exposed to the virus, and often with a trivial infection, a asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection, then a month later when they're no longer shedding virus, but rather have a, an antibody response, that they have this phenomenon where they'll have fever and evidence of, of lung or liver or heart or kidney disease which is presumably based on a vasculitis, as your immune system essentially is harming endothelial cells that line blood vessels. And because all organ systems have a blood supply, all organ systems at some level were at risk. Yet I think if we, we had a clear understanding of exactly what aspect of the immune response was associated with all this, or what aspect of the vaccine was associated with all this, I'd feel a lot better about what I don't think has happened is, is that for people who have children who have MIS-C, that when they're vaccinated, that that would essentially trigger another MIS-C response. Not because we have much data on that, because we don't. But what, what I think we do have passive data, in a sense, is there's also MIS-A, this multi-system inflammatory disease of adults, which I think is far more common than has been identified or recognized. And think about how many adults now have been vaccinated. More than half of the adult population has been vaccinated, and yet we don't see this sort of triggering of a, a MIS-A-like response in those people. And I'm sure many of them had had MIS-A before they got this vaccine. Could I take you now into vaccine data for the 12 to 15-year-olds? As I mentioned in the introduction, we are a, mem are a member of the uh, FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee. I believe the vote was unanimous to approve the uh, authorization for the vaccine for 12 to 15-year-olds. Is that correct? It never came to our committee. The, the, it um, didn't. The FDA made a decision uh, without asking for our advice. We're an advisory committee. You don't have to ask for our advice. They approved that without going through the vaccine advisory committee. Could I ask you what you think of the data that was presented on the 12 to 15-year-olds? Right. So that was a, a 2,360-child study, a placebo-controlled study. Half of those children, roughly 1,200, got vaccine. 1,200 received placebo. What they found was that the geometric mean titer of neutralizing antibodies in the vaccinated group was excellent and likely predicted protection. This was an effectiveness study. So there were 18 cases of COVID in that study, all in the placebo group. And, and this is going to be an issue because we are, we, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, are going to be considering data for the 5 to 11-year-old on October 26th. And, and the number of children who will have been tested is probably going to be similar to what it was for the 12 to 15-year-old. So what you're being asked to do is you're being asked to approve something that's been tested in, in a few thousand children, which now will be given to millions and millions of children. And so, so your heart is always in your throat with that, because you know that that few thousand child study may be an opaque window 
to what is about to happen in millions or tens of millions of children? I mean, do we have enough information to say that something's safe? Now, I mean, I do think that at least you look historically over the last 200 years of vaccine development, starting from Jenner's vaccine, when you look at the, the serious adverse events, and by serious, I mean the kind of adverse event that can cause permanent harm or death, usually the serious adverse events all occur within six weeks to two months of a dose. I mean, take your pick, whether it's polio caused by the oral polio vaccine, thrombocytopenia caused by the measles vaccine, viscerotropic disease following the yellow fever vaccine. Viscerotropic disease is just a nice way of saying yellow fever. In other words, yellow fever caused by the yellow fever vaccine or narcolepsy caused by the squalene adjuvanted influenza vaccine that was used in European countries, pandemics during the 2009 swine flu pandemic. All of those occur within six weeks of, of a dose. So the length of follow-up didn't bother me. It's just, you know, you're obviously not going to pick up a rare adverse event pre-approval which was the case with myocarditis, which was the case with thrombosis, with thrombocytopenia syndrome, which was the case with Guillain-Barre syndrome. But still, all of those events still occurred within, within two months of a dose. It's just, it was too rare to pick up in a few thousand people. So sure. And that, that's really the issue, not only with all vaccines, but with all medical innovations. The question is never, when do you know everything? You never know everything. The question is, when do you feel comfortable that you know enough? So that's going to be with the story with the 12 to 15-year-old. You knew that certainly children between 12 and 15 years old could be infected. You knew that they could suffer and be hospitalized and die. We've known that now uh, more than 500 children have died from this virus. Hundreds of thousands have been, been hospitalized. And so you know that. And then, so do you know enough here to say that you can move forward? I, I got a lot of emails actually after that approval of the 12 to 15 year old, even though the actually advisory committee wasn't involved in that. And that was the thing, really, 2,300 children, that's all you want to test? You don't want to test 23,000 children, something a little closer to what we did with adults? Really? These are children. They're, they're more vulnerable. And so you, the argument can be, okay, well, we'll test 23,000 children, in which case then it wouldn't have been 18 cases of COVID in the primarily, solely in the placebo group, but it would have been 180. You know, what price knowledge? What human price knowledge? And that's always the issue here. Well, I confess I would have been one of those emailing you. I, I thought, okay, they're going to have to study a lot more kids because, of course, the risk-benefit is not the same even in the adolescence than it is for adults and, and the follow-up time. But you've answered the follow-up time question. You wrote a piece in the Philadelphia Inquirer late September, I believe it was September 29th, and you, you addressed this issue and you used a historical context. Could you talk a little bit about why you wrote that piece and what, what you were trying to say? Right. So I'm a child of the 50s. And uh, I certainly remember polio when I was uh, five years old. I was in a polio ward for about six weeks. So I certainly remember that disease. I remember exactly what it looked like. I remember what the fear that was caused by that virus when my parents wouldn't let us go to a public swimming pool. Me and my two first cousins had to swim in that little plastic pool in the backyard for fear of polio. And so, and so Jonas Salk made a polio vaccine. He did it by taking polio virus, growing it up in monkey kidney cells, purifying the virus and activating it with a chemical formaldehyde. He then tested it in about 700 children in the Pittsburgh area and declared it to be effective as he had excellent titers, high titers of neutralizing antibodies and safe. There was no problem. It was an inactivated vaccine, so he wouldn't have expected it. There would have been a safety issue. And so he said to his wife, Donna, I've got it. This is it. This is the vaccine. Nonetheless, the March of Dimes wanted to do a huge clinical trial proving that, and it broke his heart. He didn't want to do that trial. He didn't want to inoculate children with placebo, first and second graders in the 1950s, heading into summer months when you knew polio virus was going to be an epidemic because it always is. Nonetheless, that study was done. It was, it was uh, headed by uh, somebody named Thomas Francis at uh, the University of Michigan. 
420,000 children were inoculated with Jonas Salk's vaccine, 200,000 children received placebo. And when that trial was over, Thomas Francis stood at the podium at Rackham Hall at the University of Michigan and said those three famous words, safe, potent, effective. And those three words were a headline on almost every newspaper in this country. And church bells rang out and synagogues held special prayer meetings. And the Voice of America announced it to Europe and department stores stopped while that announcement was made. So how do we know it was effective? How did Thomas Francis know that vaccine was effective? He knew it was effective because 16 children died of polio in that study, all in the placebo group. He knew it was effective because 36 children were paralyzed in that study permanently, 34 in the placebo group. These were first and second graders in the 1950s. I was a first and second grader in the 1950s, but for the flip of a coin, those children could have all lived long, fulfilling lives, but they were denied that. And that's always the issue. What price are you willing to pay for human knowledge? When I see children coming to our hospital now who were volunteering for the five to 11-year-old study or the six-month-old to four-year-old study, and I see their parents and I see these children, these are the heroes to me. And I think we should always acknowledge those gentle heroes we've left behind as we acquire knowledge. You know better than almost anyone the importance of getting a vaccine right. Could I ask you, and it's a very difficult question to put yourself back in that time, but if you'd seen Salk's data from Pittsburgh, would you have said, okay, you know, it's kind of a quasi phase one. We've got to do an RCT. We've got to get this right. How do you think he would have come down at that time? Right. Always easy in retrospect, as you note. It's hard to know. It was, you could argue, a 700-person study. He, he, knew the, he knew the dose. He knew how to make it. So it was like a phase two study. So, so did, did he need to go to a phase three study? I think, in retrospect, the answer is probably not. But we only know that because of what happened. Also, remember one other thing was that when Jonas Salk's vaccine was then approved, and, and actually the length of time it took for when the data were submitted to approval was two and a half hours. Takes a little longer to get a vaccine approved today, a little closer to 10 months today. but Two and a half hours for Oveta Kulpabi, who was Secretary of Health, uh, Education and Welfare. She approved that. And then five companies stepped forward to make it. Well, one company made it badly. Cutter Laboratories of Berkeley, California, failed to fully inactivate the polio virus in their vaccine with formaldehyde. As a consequence, 120,000 children were inoculated with live, fully virulent polio virus. 40,000 developed abortive or short-lived uh, paralysis. 164 were permanently paralyzed and 10 were killed. It was probably the worst biological disaster in this country's history. It gave birth to vaccine regulation. As you look closer at that incident, what you found was that all the companies had a problem in activating the virus. Wyeth also made a vaccine that paralyzed and killed children. It should have more fairly been called the scale-up incident as we were learning how to mass produce uh, an activated vaccine where the base virus, this so-called Mahoney strain of poliovirus, was extremely virulent. And there really wasn't much room for error there. So, you know, as always, you learn as you go. And I think people would say, OK, well, you know what? I'm just going to wait till we're past the learning curve, and then I'm going to take this medical innovation. But you're never past the learning curve. You're always learning. We're learning now. And I'm sure as we move to newer vaccines, I mean, let's say Novavax is purified protein vaccine, or the Sinopharm vaccine, or the inactivated SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, we're going to continue to learn uh, with this. It's just always true. And, and the question is, is as what, with what you know now, do the benefits outweigh the risks? That's, that's always the question. And you never know, really, until in retrospect. Well, I think I can speak for physicians around the world. We've all become reintroduced to immunology, epidemiology, and vaccinology. And so, you know, hearing the lessons of what's worked and what hasn't in vaccines is obviously so relevant today. So let me take a bit of a detour into the booster data. 
and not not simply the controversy of you know the various recommendations from your committee and the CDC advisory committee, but could you talk a little bit about the booster data? And I, I have a series of questions. One is, is this just a dose phenomenon that the Pfizer is uh, 30 mics and the Moderna is 100 mics? Does that explain some of the decrement in antibody decay over time? But beyond that, what was the role of the real-world data from Israel in convincing your committee that, you know, this is more than just the decrement of antibody levels, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is only so informative. Was it the real-world data that really swayed you? Well, actually, if you listen to our committee discussions, and this was something we considered on September 17th of this year, I'm not sure how swayed we were. I mean, there was a lot of pushback on this for a lot of reasons. I think one President Biden, when he stood at the podium on uh, August 18th and declared that everyone over 16 years of age could now receive a booster dose because this was necessary and it was going to help us get even further on top of this pandemic. I think by announcing a date, and that's what he did on August 18th, he said on September 20th, this is going to happen. So what he did there was he, I think, inadvertently just kind of sidelined the FDA and the CDC in terms of their importance in decision making. But, but I guess just taking a step back on this booster dose thing. So is it a booster dose or is it a third dose? In other words, is this a three-dose vaccine and would have always been a three-dose vaccine had this not been a pandemic? Or is this a true booster dose? So I'm going to try and separate those two things out. What's the goal of this vaccine? If the goal of this vaccine is the goal of what it is for most vaccines out there, which is to prevent serious illness, the kind of illness that causes you to suffer greatly or be hospitalized or go to the intensive care unit or die, then this vaccine does this as a two-dose vaccine for all the information we have, whether it's the two doses of mRNA vaccines or it's a single dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. If you look at those data from the time that these vaccines have been released to the present time, protection against hospitalization is excellent. It remains excellent. It remains excellent through the Delta variant. It remains excellent for all age groups. So if, if the goal is that, we've been able to do it. Now, one could argue, and and this is an argument Dr. Fauci does make, is that if you look at inactivated viral vaccines, like the hepatitis A vaccine or the inactivated polio vaccine or the hepatitis B vaccine, you really need a four to six month interval between two doses in order to generate adequate memory. But right now, at least epidemiologically, it looks like we have generated adequate memory. And if you look at studies like those by John Weary at, at the University of Pennsylvania or Shane Crotty at La Jolla, After two doses of mRNA vaccine, you induce excellent high frequencies of memory B cells, which is what you want. So there's really no evidence that you really need to do this sort of four to six months. And I'm not sure you necessarily liken the mRNA vaccines to inactivated viral vaccines because they're not the same thing. I mean, an mRNA vaccine, you could argue, is a little closer to a live attenuated viral vaccine in the sense that that what's happening, you know, the mRNA enters the cytoplasm, it enters the ribosomal system, it's translated to a protein. That's what happens with live attenuated viral vaccines, right? You're translating viral proteins in your cytoplasm. And we certainly know that, for example, a single dose of measles-containing vaccine can induce high frequencies of memory B cells. So you may not need to have that four to six month interval. So if you're, you're making that argument, I don't see any epidemiological evidence that we have anything other than excellent memory, which it lasts at least up to the present time. So then the second argument is, okay, well, we're not trying to just prevent serious illness. We're trying to prevent symptomatic, any symptomatic illness, mildly symptomatic, sort of low, moderate, or even asymptomatic illness. Well, that's a high bar. I mean, if if you look at any vaccine, neutralizing antibodies will start to fade over time. And with that, protection against asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection will fade. fade. It's true of the pertussis vaccine. It's true of the rotavirus vaccine. It's certainly true of the influenza vaccine. So that's a high bar. 
So if you're trying to do that, now you're not talking about a three-dose vaccine. You're talking about a booster dose because you're trying to get that level of neutralizing antibodies up to a level that it was seen six months before. And I think in many ways we were kind of seduced by the, the fact that when we, we had our initial phase three trial back in December, we had 95% efficacy for Bandurin and Pfizer's vaccine against mildly symptomatic illness. But remember, that was a three-month study. I mean, that wasn't a typical vaccine phase three study because normally they're not just three-month studies, they're over several years. So, so I think we were seduced by that 95% number. But I think the worst communication error we have made with this vaccine is the use of the term breakthrough illness to describe an asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection. That is not a breakthrough because the term breakthrough implies failure. And that's not a failure. I mean, you know, you hear the news coverage recently with Brett Kavanaugh where he'd been fully vaccinated and then he got an asymptomatic infection. That's a win. Congratulations. That's what vaccines are for. And Lindsey Graham, who I don't typically quote when I you know, try and look to uh, congressmen or senators in the case of Lindsey Graham that, uh, for medical advice, but he got it right. He was fully vaccinated. He got COVID, which for him was a mild upper respiratory tract infection with sinusitis. He said, quote, this would have been much worse if I hadn't been vaccinated. Right. That's exactly right. And I think that, that is a message that got lost here. I mean, the way the Brett Kavanaugh story was carried with the constant use of the term breakthrough, you thought he was in the, in the ICU when all he had was an asymptomatic infection. That outbreak in Provincetown, Massachusetts, when you know thousands of men got together, so a lot celebrated July 4th, a lot of indoor activity, 79% were, were vaccinated. And nonetheless, there was an outbreak. 346 people got COVID, uh, most asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. Four were hospitalized. In other words, 1.2% of those people who got COVID were hospitalized. That's good. That's a win. That's what you want from this vaccine. And I just think that our expectations for this vaccine are different. And probably the main reason is that if you get a flu vaccine and then you have an asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection, you're not going to be, have that detected by PCR and then be quarantined. That's probably the biggest difference. Well, could I ask you this? To what extent did the definition of efficacy in the trials play into this? And in retrospect, you know, there's a public health definition, I guess, one that communicates really the concept that you're communicating, which is we would all take a vaccine that prevents us from getting severe illness, going into the hospital, be on a ventilator and dying. Conventionally, I think most people on the planet would take that as that's a good vaccine, as you're noting. But of course, the confusion is that the data that gets reported is efficacy, that it's not as efficacious as initially reported in you know, real world data. And um, I tell people, you got to read paragraph three to find out if it's still holding up on severe disease. In retrospect, was that a problem, defining efficacy as symptoms? So when we met on September 17th, the case that was made was that it's not just an erosion in neutralizing antibodies that causes now one to have asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection. It's an erosion in protection against serious illness. And it was the Israeli data that were presented to us by two researchers from Israel. Now, if you look closely at that, and this was actually just published in the last couple of weeks in the New England Journal of Medicine, if you look closely at that study, first of all, 75% of people in that, that study were over 70 years of age. And if you look at the sort of 60 to 69 year old who was either boosted with the third dose or not boosted with the third dose, or you looked at the 70 to 79 year old who was either boosted with the third dose or not boosted with the third dose, the real statistical significance was in the 70 to 79 year old. I believe that. I mean, I believe that it's perfectly possible that someone who's over 70, who has an immune system that is going to be less robust, will benefit from a booster dose. But see, I put that person in the same category as I do, frankly, an immune compromised host. 
for which there's already a, a three-dose recommendation. So that I believe, but somehow that got extrapolated to younger people. And so then we were being asked to basically approve the vaccine for everybody over 16 years of age for that reason. And there was enormous pushback from the committee. Remember, that was the original vote, the third dose, everybody over 16. And uh, that was a 16 to two no vote. And then we started to just kind of stratify who we imagined you could give this to. And so we all agreed that giving a third dose to people over 65 made sense. And then there was just more debate about how much beyond that. And that was reflected in the, in the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, who also you know, sort of struggled with how they wanted to stratify this. But I think the thing that upsets me the most about the whole issue of, of the third dose or booster dose is, which is it? Is it a third dose or a booster dose? Because if it's a booster dose, neutralizing antibodies will also fade after the third dose. And it, that has to happen. And then the question is, what are we going to do then? Are we talking about a yearly booster? Are we talking about an every two-year booster? Because these things should be made very clear now to people in terms of what it is that we're going for, what it is we want from this vaccine. We've only got a few more minutes left, but I can't resist asking you. As I recall, I, I believe your advisory committee, the FDA advisory committee, suggested that it may be prudent to give the booster or third dose to healthcare workers and those in high-risk professions. And then, of course, the CDC advisory committee famously voted, I believe it was nine to six, to not support recommending the booster for high-risk occupations. I, I'm not going to ask you the process part of this but rather the scientific part of this. What is your sense? Is it prudent? Is there any big downside to not boosting or giving a third dose to healthcare workers? Right. So, so although the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices did vote against that, people who either work in occupations or in institutions that where the risk of transmission is high, they voted nine to six against that. That's right. But uh, Dr. Walensky, who's head of the CDC, basically said, we're going to do that anyway. You know, the real issue for me is what gets us on top of this pandemic? What can we do to get on top of this pandemic? And I think we all would agree that the, the best way to get on top of this pandemic is to vaccinate people who are unvaccinated. I, you know, if we look certainly at our hospital, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, people who come into the hospital over 12, or we look at the hospital next door, the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, when people are admitted to the intensive care unit, it's not because they are lacking a third dose, it's because they're unvaccinated. They're lacking any doses. So that, that we all agree with. So then the question becomes, if we give that booster dose or third dose, depending on how you define it, will that change the arc of this pandemic, move the needle of this pandemic? And we'll see. I hope it does. I do hope it does, but I worry that it might not. I mean, if you look at countries like Portugal, which have vaccinated virtually 100% of those who are eligible to be vaccinated, they've had a dramatic reduction in the incidence of hospitalization and death. And if you look at states in, in the United States that are similar in size to, say, Portugal, who have high immunization rates versus low immunization rates, it mimics the Portugal experience. The point being, you can get on top of this pandemic, I think, with a two-dose regimen, but not if you don't give it. And that's the difference between us and Portugal. There, they see themselves as all being in it together. Here, we're far more divided. Well, Dr. Offit, this has been a privilege to have you on Open Pediatrics World Shared Practice Forum. You've got some important work to do in the next uh, several weeks. I, I noted that you said it's October 26th that you're committee's going to meet to go over the data of the 5 to 11-year-olds. I hope that we can have you back in three weeks' time so that I could ask you questions about the data that you saw and the result that came out of that. Could I close by asking you a question that I alluded to earlier? And of course, you're going to deal with on the different doses here. So the 5 to 11-year-olds have received, as I understand it, a 10-mic dose as opposed to the 30-mic dose that I received with my Pfizer. And I asked you earlier, and I know, I suspect you haven't seen the Moderna data supporting their booster argument, but is this a dose response? Is some of what we're seeing, at least in the Moderna versus Pfizer, 
Moderna's 100 mics, Pfizer's 30 mics. Is this simply a dose response? Because the mechanism is otherwise the same for the two vaccines. Right, so they're not identical molecules, but they're certainly very similar molecules. And I think to some extent, yes. Moderna's booster dose, it, it, they're asking for a 50 microgram booster dose after you've received 200 micrograms. And for the children, you're right, the children five to 11 years of age, that dose is 10 microgram, which is a third of that given to older adolescents and adults. And for babies between six months and four years of age, the dose is going to be three micrograms, again, given sort of it's two doses, three uh, weeks apart. And we'll, we'll see those data. It's in our FDA uh, box now where we, can, we have looked at the Johnson & Johnson data and the Moderna data for the booster dose meetings that are going to be occurring October 14th and 15th. So we've seen some of those data. And I think it should be available to the public at the time of the meeting so everyone can see it. Well, Dr. Paul Laffitt, again, thank you for uh, being with us on the World Shared Practice Forum. And we hope to speak to you again in several weeks' time. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. Check out the description box to view the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast. To hear more podcasts like this one, log on to openpediatrics.org.